Let us worship God. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, indeed thy truth endureth to all generations. And we thank thee that in this generation thy truth stands firm. Thy truth is being vindicated against the wrath of men and against their counsel against thee. Lord, make us strong in thy word, in thy truth, that we may be more than conquerors, that we may stand fast in the day of adversity, that we may know thy victory. Bless us in thy service. In Christ's name, amen. Our scripture is Exodus 8, 20 through 32, and our subject, the fourth plague. The fourth plague, Exodus 8, 20 through 32. And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh, though he cometh forth to the water, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Else if thou wilt not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies upon thee, and upon thy servants, and upon thy people, and into thy houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be swarms of flies, and also the ground whereon they are. And I will sever in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarm of flies shall be there, to the end that they may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And I will put a division between my people and thy people. Tomorrow shall this sign be. And the Lord did so, and there came a grievous swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt, and the land was corrupted by reason of the swarm of flies. And Pharaoh called for Moses and for Aaron, and said, Go ye, sacrifice to your God in the land. And God said, It is not meet so to do, for we will sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. Though shall we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, and will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he shall command us. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go, that ye may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only ye shall not go very far away, entreat for me. And the Lord said, Behold, I go out from thee, and I will entreat the Lord for the swarm of flies that the swarm of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. But let not Pharaoh deal deceitfully any more in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses, 
and he removed the swarm of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. There remained not one. And Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. We see a difference now in the conflict between God and Pharaoh, between Moses and the men around Egypt's throne. First of all, these men no longer attempt to duplicate the acts of Moses. The skills of these men continue, as I pointed out last week and previously, in many areas of Africa. Thus, Nordlinger has written, and I quote, uh, he was a professor at the University of Southern California. It is recorded that the Egyptian cobra can be put into a state of rigidity. During our stay in Egypt in 1954, some of us observed a native snake charmer perform this feat, which we photographed. In fact, the Bible does designate the performance of Pharaoh's sorcerers a magician's trick, unquote. What had occurred could not be seen as anything natural. Moses and his actions were tied clearly to supernatural power. Now, more than a few people are ready then and now to accept the fact of supernatural power in certain events. But these are regarded as occasional intrusions into history. The normal flow of history is seen as naturalistic because these uh, supernatural events are seen as simply interruptions in the flow of time. They are not seen as compelling for everyday life. No more than men live in terms of possible tidal waves or earthquakes do such men live in terms of a concern for the power of God. It is remote. They see it as something that only happens occasionally. Now, as long as God's supernatural power is seen as only an occasional interruption in history, so long will naturalism govern men. The doctrine of providence tells us that God's supernatural power and government are in all events, and they are totally present. The natural order cannot exist for a second apart from God's power. I was reading last night a study of the whole idea of nature, and how it came about in Christendom in the latter part of the Middle Ages, and how nature became a substantive reality so that it replaced God. It became something that was present. So you could say things were acts of nature, but no such thing as nature exists. It is a personification it is not a reality. But the whole premise of the modern age is nature. And everything is ascribed to nature, a non-existent entity. 
but it is, in terms of all thinking now, a substantive reality with a purpose, a direction, an evolving function in history. And this is all mythology. Second, God now separated Goshen from Egypt. And from the fourth through the ninth plague, only Egypt was affected. This was an act of covenant grace and faithfulness. Israel had earned no mercy, but God was merciful. Now, this separation would have an impact on Egypt. That they were singled out for judgment was now clearly apparent. And that Israel, a slave people, had been singled out for protection was very clear. Such an act revealed both grace and judgment and mercy as scripture declares it. But grace, judgment, and the biblical doctrine of mercy were not aspects of Egyptian religion. These concepts are alien to the Egyptian Book of the Dead, their most important religious book. Theirs was not a joyful religion. A faith can affirm a variety of autonomous powers and acts by man. It can exalt man, but in so doing it ensures pessimism and despair because it means that there is nothing that can happen beyond the power of man. And therefore man quickly feels and over and over again has felt in history that natural forces doom him. The archaeologist Pritchard cited a very moving prayer by an artisan of the 19th dynasty in Egypt in gratitude for the recovery of his son from illness. It says in part, and I quote, Though it may be that the servant is normal in doing wrong, still the Lord is normal in being merciful. Unquote. The word translated as normal may mean is disposed to. Now in the Bible, sin is not normal. It's the fact of depravity which is normal now. And God's response is judgment or redeeming grace. We are told the plague was of flies. And if you notice, if you have a King James Version, the word flies is always italicized. When the King James Version italicizes, it means either that the word is supplied because it is something that is understood in the conjugation or declension of the verb or noun, or that the translation of the word is uncertain. The word flies translates a Hebrew word meaning swarm or mixture. 
it refers to insects. So some render it as insects. Luther translated it as all kind of vermin. It's also been translated as mosquitoes, beetles, and the like. The Greek word in the Septuagint is kunomuya, dogflies. And the sting of dogflies caused and causes bloody swellings. Well, since the translators of the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, were closer to the history, they may have been right, which means that the whole land was filled with a phenomenal plague of dogflies, except for Goshen, which is now an area of about 60 square miles, about 50 miles northeast of modern Cairo. Its boundaries in that area are not known to us, so we don't know how much Goshen then included. But Israel and Goshen was not affected. As a result, Pharaoh was finally moved to at least the promise of action, and he was moved to action by desperation. Now, few people in our time have been in eras or areas which are abnormally thick with flies. I know that people who have been in Alaska tell me that in certain areas you can't go out when uh, the air is still because you'll breathe in all kinds of mosquitoes and gnats and insects. I know that when I was on the reservation in northeastern Nevada, the valley, which was 5,400 feet high, was simply a network of streams, of sloughs, and of ponds, so that if an Indian had 40 acres, half of it might be underwater, and sometimes more. Well, the result was, when summer came, if you saw a man walking... On a calm day, there was a haze around him. It was the mosquitoes. And you certainly did not exert yourself in that kind of weather because if you tried mowing the lawn, you would uh, breathe hard and swallow a lot of mosquitoes and gag on them. Well... We are told that the land was corrupted or ruined by this plague. Everywhere were these dogflies, and all over everyone. And it wasn't just a question of biting. It was a bite that caused bloody swellings. Moses, in agreeing to entreat God for the end of this plague, warns Pharaoh, but let not Pharaoh deal deceitfully any more or play false again in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Now this statement is made respectfully, and yet it is all the same an indictment of Pharaoh. He has been deceitful. 
however exalted his civil and religious titles and powers, he is a thoroughly deceitful man, we are told. So there is a great audacity on Moses' part in this warning. Today, civil authorities resent any questioning of their integrity. In Egypt, with Pharaoh's total power, such a challenge was a startling one. Very startling. And it took a great deal of courage on Moses' part. Having been in a number of church and state trials, I know the savage reaction that I get if I question the integrity of the public school system or imply that there is something wrong with them or with any branch of state and their conduct. It is a secular sin of sacrilege, and the reaction is an angry one. Now, if this plague included or were one of beetles, and we are told it was a mixture, literally, there was a further oppressiveness in this fact because the beetle or a scarab was the emblem of the sun god and was held to be sacred. Egypt's natural order, which it worshipped, and its supposed sacredness, was now the curse of Egypt. The Pharaoh was believed to be the main possessor of justice and order. In his person, he incarnated it. He was the source of stability, of justice and order in the land. And now he was rebuked as an unjust and deceitful man. And now people knew throughout Egypt that all these things are happening because Pharaoh will not give in to Moses and to Israel. Now Moses insisted on the freedom to leave for purposes of sacrifices. He said if we sacrifice here, the Egyptians will stone us. They will be very hostile. Even centuries later, Jews in Egypt were killed for sacrificing animals. There is no reason to believe that the Hebrews would not have returned after sacrificing in the wilderness because it was the purpose of God not to have them deceive Egypt but to expose Egypt's evil. The purpose of the journey the sacrifice was to reestablish Israel in God's covenant. Again and again in the Old Testament, as well as the Lord's Supper in the New, we see renewals of the covenant. It is an everlasting covenant, but neither Israel nor the church are everlasting entities. So those who argue for the validity to the end of time for the covenant with Israel forget that Israel was constituted as a covenant entity and as a sign of the faithful. And the church is called the Israel of God in Galatians 
And while the covenant is an everlasting one, those who are the other party to it are not. So that God set aside Israel. And he can set aside churches and has more than once. No generation can inherit covenant salvation because its parents or grandparents believed or because of the obedience of their ancestors. Now in that era, circumcision was the mark of entrance into the covenant. And the Old Testament as well as the New make clear that circumcision means regeneration. Baptism has now replaced circumcision. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us in question 94, what is baptism? And answers, baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost doth signify and seal our engrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. A heresy over the generations has been to ascribe the everlasting aspect of the covenant to a people. Thus, whether believing or not, we are told that uh, all Jews are in the covenant to the end of time. The British Israelites say that all the supposed descendants of the ten supposedly lost tribes are in the covenant and in the blessings thereof, and that this applies to the Anglo-Saxon peoples. Various churches insist that their version of baptism gives a certain and invariable covenant status and salvation. This viewpoint translates the everlasting nature of the covenant from the covenant to an institution or to a right or to a people, and the result is theological confusion. We cannot give the attributes of God and his covenant to a people. Their status in relationship to God is conditional upon their faith, upon their obedience. And this is why, even though Israel was established in the covenant after they left Egypt, that generation was separated from the covenant and died in the wilderness because they were not faithful. So their status in the covenant was a conditional one, and they perished in their sins. Let us pray. O Lord our God, thy word is truth, and thy judgments altogether righteous. We thank thee that it is thy judgment that shall prevail, and not the judgments of men. Then as now, 
the pharaohs and the pilots of this world sit in judgment upon thy people, upon thy kingdom. But now as then, they shall not prevail, but thy will shall be done, and thy kingdom shall prevail. How great and marvelous are thy ways, O Lord, and we rejoice in them and praise thee. In Christ's name, amen. About our lesson, first of all. <clears throat> yes? Something has kind of troubled me for quite a while, that uh, this thing about nature being a non-entity that rose up during the Middle Ages, you think that this was simply an answer to persecution by people like Galileo who wanted to use their inquiring mind simply to learn something about the physical world and didn't want to have to run the gauntlet. No, it arose uh, long before Galileo. And it was a part of the revival of uh, Greek and Roman thought. In Galileo's case, as Otto Scott in an excellent uh, little study has shown, uh, the Pope was cooperative with him on his research. But the issue was, was he going to necessitate God? In other words, was nature an entity that was going to govern not only the heavenly bodies, but God as well? That was the issue. So that uh, the text of the hearings and all uh, makes clear that it was not his uh, theory but the philosophical presuppositions whereby he was going to necessitate God. Do you want to add anything to that, Otto? Well, he lied. He promised the Pope that he would issue his proofs of Copernicus's theory as a theory and then secretly published it as a fact, irrevocable, and set himself into a position of opposition to the Vatican. So the Pope had two things against him. The first was that he had lied. He broke the agreement. And the second was that he issued his observations as binding upon God. That was the, that was the crux of the argument. The enemies of the church and of Christendom have used Galileo ever since as a stick to beat the Christians with and to claim that Christianity is against science, whereas the Christian civilization was a seedbed of science. It didn't emerge from Mohammedanism or anywhere else. Any other questions or comments? Yes? When you say that uh, nature is a myth, you're not denying the reality of the, the materials world. You're not denying the, the reality of the material world. No, no. But uh, supposedly the material world is uh, a unity with a direction, a meaning, a purpose, a function, a, function, a substantive reality. 
That was what they posited concerning it. So they could speak of the law of nature and the purpose, the direction of nature, the evolution of nature, so that it was given a meaning, a purpose, a mind, as it were, albeit an unconscious mind, so that uh, in terms of specific phenomena, which were created phenomena, you had a substantive reality, which was like God. That's why we see so many references nowadays to Mother Nature. Yes, yes. Now, uh, even scientists sometimes, as one was quoted recently on the front pages of newspapers, speak of Mother Nature. We must look to Mother Nature, not to a supposed God. Well, that's a mythological kind of thinking, and it's routine in our time. Any other questions or comments? Well, if not, let us conclude with prayer. Our Lord and our God, we thank Thee that we live and move and have our being in Thee, that Thou art our universe, our Creator, our environment, that all things serve thee, and it is thy will that is done in and through all things, and thy purpose shall prevail. Make us joyful, therefore, because thou art of the throne, that this fallen world shall in spite of itself, serve thee and accomplish thy purpose, that all things shall be made new, and we shall rejoice eternally as thy people. Bless us now in the battle and in thy service, and make us more than conquerors through Christ. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.